0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, can a black Native American alliance bring the white supremacist conquistador state to an end? An author and educator thinks so. Another writer believes that the climate crisis will create the political conditions that will defeat white supremacy. We'll hear his theory as well. And political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal provides a lesson on the roots of the prison abolition movement. But first, blacks have been voting overwhelmingly democratic for more than two generations. For much of that period, the actual black economic condition has deteriorated relative to whites. But Joe Biden is running for president as if the past was great for black people. We spoke with Malika Jabali, a public policy attorney, writer, and activist based in Brooklyn, New York. Jabali says the establishment Democrats are working on the wrong assumption.
0: Yes, and with that, I would argue even before those 40 years, so we've had about 45 years since the passage of the first 1964 Civil Rights Act, and President Johnson did well with Black voters. But in the elections following, the Democratic turnout never reached that height again until the election of Barack Obama. And that's what I argue in the Guardian piece looking at Joe Biden, that even when you assume that black people will vote for you and of black voters who do show up and turn out, they do vote Democratic. But the black voter turnout has only reached kind of its apex in 1964 And in 2012. So even with those strategies, it's not working particularly well.
1: Yes, you say that Biden has a problem of delusional nostalgia, but when Black folks look back over the past two generations, they see a period of deep decline.
0: Yes, indeed. And we can see that starting to transform Black communities in the 70s in the midst of deindustrialization and you have a number of black families who moved from the south as we all know you know the story of the great migration they moved to these northern industrial towns and that saying that black people are the last hired and the first fired is completely appropriate to what happens when we think of these midwest blue-collar towns a lot of those towns had significant black populations. Today Milwaukee is about 40% black. Over the last decade, black people have been the plurality of, on average. They have been the plurality of the population in the city of Milwaukee, you know, Wisconsin, a place that we normally think of, you know, of, of white voters, of white working class people. So this idea that you can just win black people over by just making identity appeals without also connecting that identity to the failures of capitalism to their material conditions is a faulty one. It's based on a faulty premise because, for instance, in Wisconsin, it experienced the lowest Black voter turnout that it's had in recorded history. Some of that, of course, you're going to have to factor in voter suppression, but when you look at the studies, It amounted voter suppression amounted to about seven percent of the reason why people decided not to vote in that election, not just black people, but people overall. But in the two counties that are majority Democratic, voters said that about seven percent of the reason why they didn't vote was because of things related to like a voter ID, but about forty percent was related to a disinterest in the candidates. And that should tell you something.
1: And yet Hillary Clinton is still blaming her defeat in Wisconsin on voter suppression, although you point out that voter suppression, although a factor, was a minor factor compared to others.
0: Yeah, and I caution, speaking in sort of absolute terms, because I do think that it exists, it is a thing, it exist for black people whenever we go out to vote. We are always faced with voter suppression. It's something that we've experienced and it's something that I've written about and studied for a while and we've been experiencing it since we had the right to vote. So I don't think I can ever understate how important that is, but I also think that in particular cases, it can be overstated when you also have some research that shows, not all the research because there's not enough out there, but some research that shows that other things have contributed And my overall argument is that if folks see that their material conditions have not changed, and in fact, they've been declining since the 1960s, what motivation do they have to vote? What is their incentive if they see that voting for president doesn't change their lives? This is not me saying that that is what they should do or should not do. This is me reporting what they are telling me. This is what Black people are telling me when I go to Milwaukee, when I go to Chicago, you know, when I go to Detroit. This is what people are telling me. And someone has to listen to them and make some changes.
1: Well, the Democrats did make some changes, but they don't like to talk about the changes they made. They went right. They became more like Republicans.
0: Yeah, indeed. And just kind of thinking about the current election, we've got Joe Biden as a candidate who, over the course of his career, has triangulated with racists. And that triangulation has not worked for him in previous presidential campaigns because he has not lasted long enough to get enough of the vote. And I think we have to assess what we mean by a candidate who is electable. If someone has been triangulating with racists for, again, all of their congressional career And that is going to be vetted. People are going to be discussing that. They have been discussing that over the course of the campaign. It will likely increase as we get closer to the primaries next year. Then uh, there should not be an assumption that Joe Biden can win over Black voters. Yes, Democrats win over Black people who vote, but we often do not think about non-voters. And I anticipate that if he is the candidate, you will have a high amount of low uh, black voter turnout, the same kind of parallel to what we had in 2016
1: having experienced two generations of economic decline and a huge catastrophe in the 2008 Great Recession, which wiped out so much of Black household wealth, polls show that Black folks most of all want economic change. But some of those Democratic candidates resist that.
0: Yeah, I think that when it comes to economics, that is or to what people feel in terms of how inspired they will be to vote. If they feel like they're doing well, then research suggests that they are more likely to vote, or if they come from sort of these higher socioeconomic demographics. And we absolutely have to pay attention to that, looking even outside of electoral politics, or I should say presidential politics. These are things that we should be fighting for. Regardless, these are things that we should be advocating for 24-7, 365 days of the year. And if candidates are not speaking to that at all times, not just during election season, then you do not deserve somebody's vote, because otherwise it will look like you are pandering and placating, which is what you heard kind of the narrative from voters who did have low voter turnout, and it was in Wisconsin, but we also saw it in Michigan, and it also existed in Florida. And if Hillary Clinton had won more of the Black vote in just those three states, she would have won the election. However, she did not do enough to either engage voters or show that she has a long commitment to sort of this economic platform.
1: Instead of a comprehensive economic platform, the face of the party, not all the candidates, but the face of the party seems to be talking diversity in place of an economic change. And I like the The phrase that you use in one of your articles, you say that the party is willing to diversify the beneficiaries of America's imperialist and capitalist spoils. But of course, that's not a mass program.
0: Of course not. And you would counteract the whole point of capitalism if you did, because the idea is to maximize profits by almost any means necessary. And you can be a Democrat and you can be a Republican and still align with that value system. And that's exactly what we've seen. And diversity is kind of a a low bar. It is a bar that we must clear. We must diversify, of course, the levers of power. And by power, I'm thinking specifically of state power, of, of prosecutors, of mayors, of governors, of legislators. If all these people are predominantly white, then you are going to be missing kind of a big chunk of of perspectives and positions ideologically. However, like I said, that is a low bar because you can even have somebody like the Koch brothers, Charles and David David, who just passed away, who were fighting for criminal justice reform. But they were investing or making plans to invest in some criminal justice reform to prevent recidivism. And so that exists. And staunch conservatives. So that is a low bar. And if the only idea is to just diversify the pool of consumers, to diversify who can go to war, diversify who can fight for American capital in the global South, then we are not doing our job if we care about justice.
2: Aren't
1: black folks, in fact, entrapped, in a way, in the Democratic Party by the nature of the duopoly system? You have two parties, and one of them is what I would call the white man's party. That is, its organizing principle is white supremacy. And then there's the other party. And what choice does that duopoly give blacks but to go to the not white man's party?
0: I think that we are all free. As a people, we are free to make choices however we'd like. We have more and more people who are voting independent. We have more of us who are resisting. So I would not say that we are trapped per se, but we need to do a better job of organizing around our independence. I think some people do it maybe unintentionally. (laughs) I think folks who decide, okay, this system isn't working for me, but let me organize politics locally where I'm at, organize around sort of state politics that exists. And we need to do a better job, I think, of creating Black institutions where we can learn about the system or we can learn strategies for us to also be involved in politics. I mentioned politics a bit, well, quite a lot, because I am also an organizer and I'm organizing Black radicals to... Be more engaged in the political system because somebody is going to make those choices for us. So it is imperative (laughs) to always think about building regardless of kind of what's going on in this very limited two-party system.
1: And yet it appears that the Democrats are still relying on an anybody but Trump mentality in Black America, that Blacks will vote Democratic just to get rid of the orange menace.
0: Yes. I mean, and that strategy didn't work in 2016. You know, we can't predict the future. There's a possibility it could work. Now that people have seen the extent of Trump's dogmatism and and bigotry and what he would allow, but it's also possible that it won't work. You know, we don't know. And, you know, it might be too late at this point for, I guess, the leaders of the Democratic Party to kind of switch and and be progressive, which they're probably not going to do, to captivate people to say, hey, these are policies that are actually winnable. We can actually win on a Green New Deal. We can actually win on single payer healthcare. we can actually win on uh, taxing the rich and kind of reappropriating our resources for social services. However, that has not been their position for decades now. And it may be too little too late.
1: Yes, Trump or no Trump, the stats on the ground in Milwaukee, as you pointed out, still remain. That back in 1970, 73% of working-age Black men in Milwaukee had a job. But today, only about 45% have a job.
0: Yes, and I am focusing on Milwaukee, but this is a story throughout the Midwest. And so one of the key things that I think has been missing in all of the analysis, excluding mine, (laughs) you know, honestly, and maybe one other that kind of happened a couple years after, what's a key point that has been missing is that there is, of course, the southern sort of blue wall in the kind of these key states in the south. However, in swing states where the vote really changes, where it shifts, you have significant black disillusionment. And as I mentioned before, that's it's in Milwaukee, it's in, you know, you see it in Michigan, you see it in Missouri, you see it in states where the black condition has deteriorated. We've been doing relatively better in the South. So if we are thinking of black people as a monolith, instead of, oh, they have these different experiences, whereas in the Midwest, you've got more of what's happening in Milwaukee throughout the Midwest, because the factories have left or gone to the suburbs. You have less of that in the South because cost of land is cheap. People can't afford a home. So there's sort of a, a more middle class, I think, participation in the system among Black people in the South that you do not see as much in these industrial northern cities. That analysis is missing. And if you miss that, then you're going to not go to Wisconsin and campaign to get Black votes, as Hillary failed to do. You're going to only conceive of the Midwest as white and working class and appeal to them. And you're going to miss a whole swath of people who say, "Okay, well, clearly they don't care about me. Why should I care about them?
1: So you do see a future for independent Black politics, especially in the deeply disillusioned North.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The organization that I work with, Operation Power, we have been able to chip away at the Democratic establishment in East New York, Brooklyn, its a neighborhood in the eastern part of Brooklyn. And we have elected an assembly person. We have elected a councilwoman. We have a community board full of people who align with our politics. We're on paper. Yes, we have to register as Democrats because that's where our people are. You know, we also have to be strategic. If our people are Democrats then. <laughs> then it's going to be unlikely that we can claim independence right now. It is a transition to be able to say, oh, we can kind of nip the establishment in the bud for starters, and then eventually kind of get people to come around to our own agenda, come around to socialism, come around to more radical politics that can actually change our material
1: condition. That was writer, activist, and attorney Malika Jabali speaking from New York City scholars have written quite a bit about alliances between blacks and native americans resisting european conquest and enslavement in the americas But Tiffany King, an assistant professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Georgia State University, has written a book that argues that blacks and Native Americans still pose a threat to what she calls the conquistador white settler nation. Tiffany King's book is titled The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies.
3: I think the chemistry or the connective tissue is there are impulses within both Black abolition and Native decolonization that are fundamentally about ending the U.S. So, one, they situate the U.S. as a genocidal project. And also, the U.S. isn't something that's always existed, and it's something that we can get beyond and actually need to in order to survive. So I see those radical impulses in both Black abolition and Native decolonization. That's why I think they're so important to focus on. So I think in their most kind of radical thrust, they don't rely on, and I'm actually drawing on some of Sadia Hartman's work and some of her more productive conversations with Frank Wilderson about these political categories like the labor that can be incorporated into nation states and can be a figure that can help build the nation state. And Native decolonization and Black abolition like fundamentally interrogate the usefulness of these human categories like labor that are often wedded to nation state projects. We can get beyond those political categories that don't always serve us so well. And so I think at their most radical impulses, these are the movements we need to be looking at that can help us get to another kind of vision.
1: Yes, it's quite clear that Black folks in the United States and Native Americans can't live as long as the white settler state exists. But you say that the dialogue, the conversation that is engendered by some folks is too polite. It doesn't meet the threat. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, it's true. I've been thinking not just, about some traditions within Black studies who, for instance, I, was, I think with Toni Morrison, particularly her work of literary criticism, Playing in the Dark, where she uses the discourse of conquest to talk about the way that domination unfolds in the U.S., particularly as it pertains to Black people. And not all Native people have liked it. They think that she displaces uh, the Native subject in that work. But then when I also look at um, the Lenape scholar, Joanne Barker, she actually, in a 2011 blog post on her Tequila Sovereign site, was saying that to use this discourse of settlement, it's way too polite. It's way too polite. The kind of violence and carnage that Indigenous people and Black people experience for her is on the level of imperialism because it it focuses on the kind of state violence that goes on on a daily basis. And I'm arguing in my book that maybe we need to return to this language of conquest to think about the ways that the actual conquistador from the 15th century was an enslaver and to some extent a homicidal figure, right? He was committing genocide and enslaving Black folks at the same time. So I look at the figure of the conquistador of Christopher Columbus in the first chapter and think maybe we need to turn to that figure to think about the kind of ontological violence that whiteness is doing in the U.S. settler state. It's not about settlement, right? Settlement implies a particular kind of revolution, particularly for Jillian Barker, um, that things are settled and finished and resolved. And it's also, it's not active and violent enough. So I think we needed some new terms and some new vocabulary to explain the very real-time ongoing violence that occurs in the um, U.S., what I call a conquistador state, a conquistador settler state every day. So I wanted more precise language. I wanted language that was a little bit more real and honest, so we could start to have a more robust political conversation about the violence that Black and Indigenous people are resisting.
1: You speak of the unique capacity to end this conquistador settler U.S. nation that Blacks and Native Americans have. But do we really have that capacity, or is it just that we're the only ones within the U.S. that want to end it?
3: Hmm. No, you're right. I mean, the issue of capacity, having that kind of vision be intelligible to folks and one that folks rally around is difficult, right? The abolition of the United States is not something that many liberal folks or even progressive folks would find themselves willing to attach themselves to or embrace or align with. But I think we provide the vision. And so certainly that vision could become more real for Black folks, Indigenous folks, folks of color centuries from now in a moment where we don't exist. Just the idea of the U.S. might not be viable and sustainable for the planet anymore. And I think the seeds of thinking about that, um, you find those in Black communities and Indigenous communities that are thinking about radically altering how we relate to one another and the way that we often get there and the way that we often dream is through these abolitionist practices and decolonial imaginaries but i think it's something that might be a possible horizon way way down the future a time when you and i glenn are not alive but this idea of the us will not be sustainable forever
1: Most white people in the United States, even if they're sympathetic to the Black plight and the plight of Native Americans, they want to purge conflict from society, not resolve the fundamental questions of privilege and power. It's more like, can't we all get along? (laughs)
3: That is true. I'm going to speak actually as a teacher here. Like I always thought that the way to have particularly white people in my classroom talk about white supremacy, talk about the violence of the U.S. nation state was to actually have them name themselves as the problem. But then when I started to think about the power of talking about your desire and the power of talking about how our desires might bump into and rub up against other people's desires, it became a more honest and real conversation where you could understand how your whiteness became a problem. So I'll give you an example. In my fourth chapter, I use the work of Audre Lorde and specifically her uses of the erotic. And I put her in conversation with a Cree poet named Billy Ray Belcour, who works in queer indigenous studies and also talks about the power of the erotic. And when I talk about this issue of the erotic in my classrooms, which are primarily Black, but there are about 30% of my students are white, there's a way that once when you talk about what you want, what you desire, be it family, land, economic stability, and we put all of our different desires on the table, we start to see how white desire can crowd out of the other desires in the room. So how white desires for community can often produce gentrification. And so we can talk about them as desires that are real and that people should have, but we can also talk about adjusting those desires and making room for everyone. So how do we acknowledge white desire, acknowledge Black and Native desire, put all those desires on the table and say, how are we impeding upon each other's desires? And that, during those moments, People can be real with themselves and say, the way that I do my whiteness or my white desire on a daily basis fundamentally gets in your way as a Black person and as an Indigenous person. And let's talk about how I can be different. And I think this is some of what folks like Nick Estes, Melanie Yazzie from Red Nation, who are actually working with white people and working with white people's deep fears that Indigenous people are going to tell them to get out of the U.S., It's like, nah, how do you make room? How do you become a different person? And rethink about what you fundamentally need and want. So I think starting with desire is a way to also have people also think about how they, they and their very desires can become violent and an impediment to life. So it is a difficult task. And we do have to be creative in finding ways for white folks to have this conversation. That
1: sounds like it's in the realm of imaginings of the future. And your book tries to imagine futures for Blacks and Native peoples. Could you share some of those imaginings with our listeners?
3: Yeah, it really does. I mean, in order to get to imagining futures for Black and Native folks, I also really wanted to honor the ways that Black and Indigenous people have been talking to one another, the ways and the moments that we think about one another in our art, in our politics, in order just to acknowledge and affirm that we've been doing it for a while. So we're not starting from scratch. We have these traditions, particularly in Black women's art. And I thought with the work of Julie Dash, not just her film Daughters of the Death, but her novel, And I thought about Taya Miles' work, um, A Cherokee Rose, and I thought about some of Audre Lorde's journaling where she's thinking about Indigenous women, which made me think about her relationship with Joanne Barker. And I just wanted to really track the ways and speak to the ways that we've always been thinking about one another in our survival. And so then I'm allowed to think with some of the more futuristic work, like the Black Canadian and Black Jamaican woman, Charmaine Lurch, who's a sculptor and a multidisciplinary artist who actually thinks about how Black and Indigenous females or Black and Indigenous women have been in relationship with one another since the 15th century through her figure, Sycorax, and how she actually creates sculpture to honor their form and their presence in the Americas in the present and in the future. So, I'm thinking about the work of artists who really stretch their imaginations to help us think about the ways that we're fundamentally connected to one another as Black and Indigenous people in this landmass. And I'm thinking about that as a creative force that sustains the work of folks who are in Chicago, like Lifted Voices, who explicitly work on Black and Indigenous issues in Black and Indigenous survival. Also, a lot of folks in Canada are already thinking this way. I spent two years in Toronto, and the conversations between Black activists and Indigenous activists are deep and sustaining. They've been going on for years and years and years. They've been building over decades, and they continue to do artistic work with one another. They continue to actually build campaigns around prison abolition for both Black and Indigenous folks. They think about the ways that the Canadian settler state can be a different kind of place. So they've been thinking with each other and building not just coalition and not just something that we would call alliance, but literally building worlds and futures with one another. So this work is happening. This work through art sharing food, loving one another, working with I Don't Know More and Black Lives Matter, particularly in Toronto, is a way of building the future and the present. So the work is is happening, and I just wanted to name and honor that work.
1: Yes, the Canadian perspective is quite evident in your position. You say that Blacks and Native Americans represent a fundamentally antagonistic relationship to this white supremacist state. And I agree with you, but the FBI says the same thing.
3: (laughs) That is true, right? I mean, so you said the FBI says the same thing. I think that actually if we think about how the state tracks us as Black and Indigenous people, that can give us some more kind of cues as to why we should be thinking with one another, We we are a fundamental threat and the state has responded in that way. And so I don't want to push us towards annihilation necessarily and some confrontations with the state that we have not agreed upon as black folks in solidarity with indigenous folks. But both of our projects fundamentally are against U.S. empire and the U.S. death machine. Right. That is one thing. That we have in common that I necessarily don't trust that the white settler necessarily rocks with us with. I think that many white settlers who profess a particular kind of progressive politics that's aligned with abolition and native decolonization want to fix the US, wants to make the US a little bit better. And this is not just true for white folks, but I'm thinking specifically about. These new iterations of Black campaigns for U.S. reparations, so the ADOS movement, I see this impulse to fix and correct and reform the U.S., which I think ultimately is going to be a failed project. It's not going to repair Black folks. So there are some competing politics that I think we have the opportunity to look at and critique and actually see that embracing an abolitionist and a decolonial stance will actually get us to this future in a way that U.S. reparations, as articulated by ADOS, might not. And this is a longer conversation that I didn't fully prepare myself to have with you, Glenn, but I think it's something that the Black Agenda Report is tracking. But, I mean, we have some of these more conservative politics, which are calling themselves liberatory, specifically ADOS, that are actually crowding out the more radical kinds of abolitionist and decolonial politics that can actually really fundamentally get to the core of the stolen wealth and the stolen land um, that the U.S. has built itself upon. I think what I wanted to come across in this book is that Black Studies has something to say about certainly Black people's relationship to Indigenous folks, the way that genocide and not just westward expansion, but settler expansion and space making has touched both Black and Indigenous people's lives. And I think that with the advent of the field like settler colonial studies, Black studies hasn't been like the conventional space to look for that analysis or the conventional or common sense space to think about how Black and Indigenous people have related to one another. Black Studies is seen as a space that is deficient or ill-prepared to answer some of these questions or even ask some of these questions about how indigeneity blackness slavery and genocide connect to one another and that just seemed really strange to me we have our own tradition we have our own vocabulary we have our own rubrics and ways of talking about it and that's what I really wanted to focus on in this book so I didn't want to put black studies at the center of a white discourse because in that way I'd be centering white settler colonial studies I actually wanted to pull some of these discussions about indigeneity and settlers into the terrain of Black Studies and have them deal with the analytics and the theories and the thinkers in Black Studies who are already working on this. So that's a really important component of my project that I hope people take away and and sit with and think about.
1: That was Professor Tiffany King at Georgia State University. Climate change threatens to make much of life on Earth extinct, including human life. But educator and journalist Nicholas Powers thinks some good can come out of the mobilization to fight climate change. Powers is author of the book, The Ground Below Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man, New Orleans to Darfur, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street, Powers is also an associate professor of English at the State University of New York at Old Westbury. In a recent article for Truth Out, Powers surmised that the climate crisis may create the political conditions to finally
4: defeat white supremacy. The climate crisis is combining with an economic crisis of late-stage capitalism. And capitalism has been the conveyor belt For European ethnic immigrants to move up into whiteness. And now that capitalism is being snarled up by its own contradictions, the finance sector has taken over. Neoliberalism has gutted the welfare state. People are finding it difficult to maintain the lives that they see advertised on their cell phones, on the TV screens, on newspapers, magazines, and movies. So there's this incredible social strain at the same time that the demographics in the United States are becoming increasingly diverse. And so whiteness right now is radioactive with anger, fear, and hopelessness. And it's becoming also more visible to itself. And so now that capitalism is no longer the conveyor belt for whiteness, moving it upward and onward into the future, there is this rage. There's a spilling over. And then on top of that, there is the climate crisis, which means that the resources and the land and the water and the food that we take for granted are becoming increasingly in shorter and shorter supply, that there's going to be an incredible conflict rising out of this. And so because we have these twin crises coming together at the same time, the Green New Deal offers us, I think, a way out. It's a kind of a historic moment. So now that the value of whiteness is under debate and in some places crumbling because of the class divisions and the conveyor belt is broken down and the Green New Deal, I think what it can do is offer a new identity. It's not that whiteness is going to disappear or vanish, but that its value can be diminished and the value of being a new American can rise. And this new American would be a white male male white female, middle class, working class, working poor, who is now in a multiracial, multi-class coalition that is under the umbrella of a Green New Deal in which their environmental needs, their economic needs, their psychological needs to belong to something greater than themselves are being answered in a far more efficient and better way, in a holistic way, with the Green New Deal than it ever was under the conveyor belt of white supremacist capitalism.
1: I understand what you're saying, but you outlined already the crises that capitalism in its late stages face without the presence of this climatic threat hanging over the entire world. How does it change the racial and political dynamic just by virtue of there being this threat?
4: People are experiencing climate change almost against their will. Those who have bought into the conservative narrative that either climate change doesn't exist, or if it does, that it's beyond human ability to change, are now finding themselves at the front lines of wildfires in California, floodings in the Midwest, rainstorms and hurricanes that are flipping over islands at Lake Puerto Rico. And so now this existential threat requires an existential change of mind. And there has to be a new narrative that's going to answer these new problems, these new questions. And so I think that the Green New Deal offers them a new narrative that is more holistic and more, in the end, realistic than the kind of ostrich image of burying your head in the sand. And finally, to be really, really clear, that the threat that has been constantly put into the face of the kind of conservative red state America... That threat has always been a fiction. The immigrants, which are supposed to cause all this crime, actually don't cause crime. In fact, they commit crimes at a far lesser rate than American citizens. The threat of uh, black male criminals, which has always been used from say the Willie Horton ad of George Bush's presidential campaign in the eighties, up until Trump using the Mexican gang member in his most recent political ad, that the threat has always been a racialized other. But the reality is that that is actually a political fiction. And that has never been the on the ground threat to actual white Americans. The actual threat now that people are increasingly seeing as their homes are getting destroyed by fire, by flood, is the environment. So I would say the distinction, to put a really clear thumb on it, is between reality and fiction. That the conservatives have been, conservative Republican elite, the establishment, have been peddling racial fictions as the enemy. But at some point, when you realize that the environment, that the wind, that the rain, that the rivers, that the fire themselves are actually threatening your lives much more than any racial boogeyman, in the end, you have to deal with reality as it really is. So I think that that's the distinction. It's between reality of the climate crisis versus the fiction of the racial boogeyman that's been peddled for so many decades.
1: Any honest person can see that only socialism can meet the crisis of the changing climate. I think that folks in in the offices of Exxon are probably more aware of that and see that as the threat, not the climate, but the threat of socialism, more than folks on the streets of Chicago or in the bayous of Louisiana.
4: Yeah, the elites are definitely aware. I mean, ExxonMobil And I think you're very right, and I appreciate you bringing that up, because they've actually suppressed their own findings about climate change for decades. So there's two mistakes that they're making. They think that they can buy themselves safety, that they can buy climate change safe zones far away from the masses and be protected. And then second, that they think any form of socialism is going to lead, in their mind, to a kind of totalitarian nightmare state, As what they envisioned the Soviet Union was. So the reason those two things are mistakes, the first one is that money is only going to go so far. You can only buy so much allegiance, so many guards, so many land before the pressure of the masses of people who are suffering and starving and are left out to survive the elements of climate crises overwhelm whatever barricades you have, overwhelm whatever guards you've employed, and overwhelm whatever lights and embattlements that you've put up. You can't hold back the masses of humanity from your safe zone. It's just not possible. So that's the first mistake that the elites make. The second is this kind of road to serfdom thesis. If socialism is allowed, even one small domino fall, Medicare for all, or free college tuition, or any kind of Green New Deal that the dominoes are going to fall, and at the end, they're going to be in the Soviet Union. And yet, when you look at what's even being proposed right now as democratic socialism, it's not actually socialism. It's liberal reformism, which at its strongest version with Bernie Sanders, just barely gets there. And that's the strongest that's even out there in terms of the electoral political system. Everything else from Warren all the way down to Biden is a watered-down version of it. So that's that. But then in the end, there's a really faulty image of who the people are. And from this, if you don't mind, I'm just going to just draw on my own experience. So, you know, yes, I teach literature. I also moonlight as a reporter. And my need to report from crisis zones really begins because I'm a New Yorker and I was here during 9-11 and I helped during 9-11. And then in 2005, I went to Hurricane Katrina, flooded New Orleans. 2007, I went to Darfur. Chad to help the Darfur refugees. Um, I went to Haiti after the hearth- earthquake in 2010, and I went to Puerto Rico in 2017 after the hurricane. So the reason I bring all those up is because I've seen masses of people in the global south and in the global north dealing with devastation, most for the most part natural disasters. And what I've seen over and over again is that the people help each other out. A great spirit of solidarity rises from the people, when they are giving each other food, helping each other start fires, keeping each other warm, keeping each other safe. Of course, there's always going to be a minuscule amount of predators, but the masses of people generally help each other out. There's a, a great spirit of solidarity, and the people generally are decent but human beings. And it's important to say that because that is the spirit that animates socialism. It's not this kind of totalitarian jackboot dressed in black or with a black armband image that the elites have of socialism, which is really fascism, which is usually what they support. The reality is is socialism is animated by the spirit of solidarity and generosity by the people, which I have seen at the ground zero level when I've gone to multiple natural disasters around the world. That's who human beings really are by default. We are not this cannibalistic species that turns on each other at the drop of a dime. I think it's important to say that. Socialism is animated by the spirit of generosity.
1: And yet currently we see the opposite and simultaneously existing reality in which the corporate media have whipped up with relative ease an hysteria against threatening enemies uh, the russians as enemies and those people who are dupes of russians and the chinese as the modern-day yellow peril and the corporate media has made foreign interference in the U.S., the nemesis, and elevated that to a kind of existential crisis. And that is the farthest thing away from seeking greater cooperation among nations to solve the global climate crisis.
4: It's a bit of a shell game. So for those of us who live in the tri-state area, anytime you go to downtown, it's pretty Often you see someone doing the the card game or the shell game. You know, they take those cups, they put a little something underneath the cups, and they switch the cups around. And, you know, you can guess which cup holds the shell or which card holds the mark. And you almost always lose because the hands are very quick. The media plays a similar game. One minute it's the Russians that are the enemy. Next minute it's the Venezuelans, which are the great socialist threat. Next minute it's North Korea. And it's a constant shell game of who's the enemy now. And the point is not to say who's the enemy or not. The point is to keep you watching. And so that's the trick that's being done through the media on the masses of people. But again, in reality, when you're on the street, most of people want to just live a decent life, have decent relationships with themselves and with their neighbors. And there's a great multiple amount of movements, both in the US, from the Sanders campaign, the fight for 15, Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement, and then the great uprisings that are happening in Lebanon, in Chile, in Haiti, in Hong Kong, in Iraq. And what we're seeing popping off all over the world is I would say the beginning of a new internationalism, which focuses more on what we can do together as a multitude rather than wasting our energy focusing on who is the latest enemy conjured up by the media.
1: I keep on thinking about the great West African revolutionary Amokar Cabral who cautioned us to tell no lies and claim no easy victories. At present in the U.S., the United States is using its global financial power, uh, powers that nobody in the world has, as a weapon against other nations. And it's doing that, and I'm talking about sanctions against a growing list of countries, it's doing that with the support of some progressive Democrats, some of them in the Sanders camp.
4: Yeah, I won't pretend to know the inside game of the Sanders camp, but it is not surprising that there would be... Either progressives or neoliberal Democrats who are siding along with joining forces with these sanctions. I think one of the poisons in the American consciousness is the idea of America, an exceptional country, and that it must be, by virtue of its exceptionalism, ruler of the world, a kind of baton passing that it got from Britain. And the British Empire, now then, after World War II, when Britain was in decline, was passed to the United States. And so between the United States' kind of identity as this city on a hill, exceptional country, and then the kind of passing of the torch in this relay race for power between Britain and America. And so that ideology of American exceptionalism has, drop by drop, poisons even progressive minds. So it's not surprising. And I think one of the The ways to inoculate oneself against that kind of, well, yes, let's join the sanctions on these other countries. Let's exert and muscle our influence and our exceptionalism is to look at the struggle of the people who are on the ground and how exceptional they are and how exceptional the risk that they take and realize that the human spirit does not belong in the glass house of American privilege, but it's actually rising up from the streets all over the world. And I think by joining forces, again, with a new internationalism, with the groups, even though many are not organized and there's no firm organization or leadership class yet, but to join forces as much as possible in a new internationalism that is very fluid, that is quick, mobile, passionate, and powerful, that hopefully then we can cure ourselves not only of our own impotence, you know, leftists impotence, but then also that exceptionalist poison that has gotten into our heads and realize that our lives and their lives are bound up with each other.
1: Well, you know, Mr. Powers, I can envision a new cohort of young people, adolescents and young adults, the kind of generation that we have seen transformed in past eras like the 60s. One can see them joining up to create a political movement like the one you envision, but they're still working on human time while the crisis has acquired its own dynamic and it's rushing down upon us.
4: Yeah, there's a race. And human culture is kind of a mass illusion. And we all believe in the story flashing in our brains until the story changes. And it can change quick, but it may not change quick enough to stop the climate change and becoming a climate crisis, devastation, and people retreating from the coastal cities further inward. So it means that... We can't just look at it as an uprising. We can't even maybe look at it as a revolution. What's going to be needed is a centuries-long and civilizational-level revolution that has to look not at short-term, but at a really, really long arc of history. Because even as we seize, this new movement seizes some levels of power that climate change may force new demands we'll have to retreat from the coastal cities we have to rebuild infrastructure we'll have to change what we eat and how it's produced we'll have to build a new energy infrastructure grid all of these things are going to be constant generations of work just to keep up with the change that's already baked in because of the carbon that we already have in the sky and it's going to take constant 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 revolution so in some ways we maybe have to kind of think of the the trotsky model of constant ongoing revolution thinking that this is not a one-time thing, but this is a revolution that's going to have to be spinning over and over again for maybe a century or two just to deal with the sequence of events that are going to come from climate change. So we're going to have to have a new pair of eyes. We can't have short-term eyes. We're going to have to have very long-term eyes. And that's a very different mindset. But it, the one beautiful thing about our species is that we can have long-term stories. We're able to do that the trick is that we have to pass down those stories to the next generation and tell them what we've learned and what they can expect ahead. We have to be honest with our kids. And I think the generation that's in the street now is angry because they weren't told the truth about capitalism and they weren't told the truth about climate change. I think for those of us now in the movement of this new internationalism, we're going to have our role to play in this generation. And then we're going to get too old and then we're going to have to pass on. But the one thing we do has to do is pass on the truth to the next generation.
1: That was journalist, author, and English professor Nicholas Powers. Mumia Abu-Jamal, the nation's best known political prisoner, presents this report on the roots of the current prison abolition movement.
2: There can be no serious consideration of the subject of prison abolition in America without reflection on the work of black feminist scholar, activist, Dr. Angela Y. Davis, who in 2003 published Is the Prison Obsolete? by Seven Stories and Open Media Press. Her work is the ubertext, the forerunner of works on the abolition of the oppressive spectacle of prison, especially in the era of mass incarceration. Early in her text, Professor Davis recounted her memories of the early 60s, a period of American history when black radicals were imprisoned for their work in the Black Liberation Movement, among which was Angela Davis herself. She wrote, When I first became involved in anti-prison activism during the late 60s, I was astounded to learn that there were then close to 200,000 people in prison. Had anyone told me that, in three decades, ten times as many people would be locked away in cages, I would have been absolutely incredulous. I imagine that I would have responded something like this. As racist and undemocratic as this country may be. Remember, during that period, the demands of the civil rights movement had not yet been consolidated. I do not believe that the U.S. government will be able to lock up so many people without producing powerful public resistance. No, this will never happen Not unless this country plunges into fascism. That's the insight and vision of Dr. Angela Y. Davis. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio.
1: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.